Hi, everyone. I'm Artemis. And I'm Rajni. And we are STEM Women in Kidlet. I'm an entomology technician and the author of Do Jellyfish Like Peanut Butter? Amazing Sea Creature Facts and The Grumpy Pirate. I'm a doctor and the author of the middle grade novels Midsummer's Mayhem, Red, White, and Whole, Much Ado About Baseball, and the picture books Seven Golden Rings, Bracelets for Bina's Brothers, and more. Hi, everyone. Today at STEM Women in Kid Lit, we're here talking with Laura Gale. Laura got her PhD in neuroscience and then went on to work in a neurobiology lab. Since then, she's gone on to author almost two dozen children's books, such as the Baby Scientist board book series, and picture books like Happy Lamaca, Judge Juliet, and the upcoming Odd Beasts Meet Nature's Weirdest Animals. Hi, Laura. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. It's great to have you. So, Hi, Laura, Laura, we would really love to hear a little bit about what it was like for you during neuroscience research. Well, you know, when I look back on that part of my life, it kind of feels like I'm just watching a movie. Like I used to work with radioactive material. So I had the badge that would, you know, make sure I wasn't getting too much radiation. And we were working with uh, mouse brains. So we would literally be sacrificing mice and scooping out their brains. And now it just, it, it doesn't even seem real anymore because my current life is so different, but I did absolutely love doing research. I, I still think being a scientist is the most amazing thing in the sense that you are actually discovering things that no one else has ever discovered. You are contributing knowledge to the world that the world would not have had if it wasn't for you. And that is just incredible. So I'm super grateful for that part of my life, even though I will probably never go back to working in a lab. I, you know, I wouldn't have traded it for the world for sure. So that you is so moved- cool. What kind of, uh, what were you studying in the mouse brains? So we were studying a neurotransmitter that most people have never heard of called N-acetylaspartyl glutamate NAG. Um, and so pretty much every experiment we were running had something to do uh, with levels of NAG. Um, And I had the best advisor and the best people who worked in my lab. And it really was just a great part of my life. That's really interesting. I mean, it was the parts about scooping out brains probably was kind of sad, but, (laughs) but (laughs) it's my first son when I was uh, working in the lab and I started having nightmares that because I was sacrificing these mouse babies, like literally taking them away from their mothers, killing them and then scooping out their brains. I had these nightmares that someone was going to do that to my baby as karma. And uh, I guess, you know, time I had mixed feelings about animal research and I still do. uh, But it it definitely came out in those those pregnancy nightmares. (laughs) That's, that's, that's pretty awful, I would say. Yes. <laughs> well, I, on, a, on a more benign note, I once uh, had a friend um, in medical school who did research uh, for a year or something like that, a year or two in college, and she studied tomatoes. 
and she had to like remove all the seeds from tomatoes and like do whatever stuff they were going to do with them (laughs) and for years she could not stand it may still be true she could not eat raw tomatoes she was just like oh but like if you cooked them or you like made this a sauce out of them that was fine but like the idea of raw tomatoes completely turned her stomach and I was like oh okay you know I had a summer job where I was measuring cucumbers and I had a lot of free cucumbers that summer and also I just like measured and counted the seeds in a lot of cucumbers and I just didn't eat cucumbers for a really 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 long time after that and I bet there I, I can't be the the only one or your friend with the tomatoes and Laura I'm sure you don't eat mouse brains now either like, like yeah you know after you know. a few years of mouse brains you just are like I'm done with the mouse brains I'm not eating them I don't know I don't, yeah I've, I've sadly never gotten to scoop out a mouse brain I did decapitate a lot of fruit flies though for one class in like circadian biology we decapitated a lot of them I feel like yeah. that would be emotionally easier yeah I, mean, I could kind of handle that as an entomologist you get really attached to to insects also but for me anyway I think uh, it would I love them kill <laughs> than mice little baby mice <laughs> that's that's very sad yes we, we, okay we need to like not think about this anymore <laughs> all right so from brains <laughs> brains to board books how how did you move from scooping out brains to writing board books I mean, you wrote other books too, but the board books, you know, it sounded good after Brains. Long, a long road. I started, when I started my attempts to become a picture book author, I naturally thought that as a scientist that I would write books about science. And the first books I tried to write were mostly about science and they were absolutely awful. And I think part of it was I had, I had written for magazines about science and I was trying to use too much of those skills. And it's so different writing about science for a magazine versus writing, uh, you know, a picture book about science. So then for years, I just veered away and I was writing pretty much purely fiction books. And now I've come back. I feel like after enough distance from actually working as a scientist and enough years of learning about what makes a nonfiction picture book or board book work, I finally have have figured out how to do it. But uh, my original idea that it would be easier to write nonfiction since I had a strong nonfiction background was completely wrong. And of course, I discovered what many people know that it, it's hardest to know what you it's hardest to write about what you know the most about. So to this day, I haven't tried to write anything <laughs> about neuroscience because even things that seem really simple to me are not simple to other people. And so um, it's easier to write about topics where I am doing research and learning myself um, as opposed to trying to write about something where I actually have some expertise. So I guess that's a little counterintuitive, but I think most... Uh, people who have tried to write um, picture books in areas where they have a huge amount of knowledge probably understand how difficult it is. Maybe it's just because you're so used to talking about everything in such um, like scientific term terminology and just everybody you talk to about those subjects just already like knows what you're talking about. Even if you simplify by like 
a hundred times, it's still too complex. Whereas if it's an area where you don't know as much, you're able to simplify it to a kid level with a lot more success, I think. So I'm sure I, there are people who can do it better than me, but that, that's been my experience. And I bet the temptation to try and be comprehensive is really overwhelming, right? Because you know so much, you're like, but I, then, I, then I didn't talk about this and this and this and this. And like, not, like most people couldn't understand that. And also to be fully accurate. I even, when I was writing my baby scientist books, I even struggled with that because I have one that's baby astronaut and my editor wanted me to talk about the concept of gravity. And I did, but it was frustrating because I knew that I couldn't really introduce microgravity and and all the complexity that many adults don't even understand. But I also knew that the way it's explained in the book, as it is printed today, is not really fully 100% accurate. And so that, that bothered me even with that topic, which is not at all in my area of expertise. And it would bother me a lot more if I was trying to write about neuroscience. And uh, I think that, that that is a really good point that you you it's hard to edit out. And it's also hard to not want everything to be so clear when you have to be willing to let that go in order to have a compelling storyline that will appeal to especially board book age kids. Well, and I mean, there's a difference between inaccurate totally and maybe very simplified. And I think as a scientist, you're kind of trained to think that something is inaccurate if it's like oversimplified to a point because it, you don't have all of the details and everything. Right. And you yeah. have to let that go and it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> so what, so tell us a little bit about um, the way your process has been different when you write fiction versus nonfiction. So I think a lot of times when I'm writing fiction, you know, I try to have a compelling story and I try to have a main character that is likable and that kids will relate to. And I try to have humor and I try to have heart. But behind every fiction picture book, there's some kind of theme or message. Um, you know, one of my recent picture books that's fiction is the Ninja Club Sleepover. And that one has themes of acceptance and friendship and bravery. Whereas when I'm writing a nonfiction picture book, with the exception of I wrote a, a biography of astronomer Nancy Grace Roman, and that definitely had themes of persistence and overcoming prejudice against women. Mm -hmm. But but the nonfiction picture books that I've been working and board books that I've been working on more recently are less about a theme and more about, you know, a topic where the theme is science and learning about science and learning about different aspects of science. So, so because of that, I feel like I'm approaching it differently. Um, and I, I really like doing both at the same time because I feel like they use different parts of my brain and kind of different skills in terms of writing them and revising them. So I'm happy to have both types of books in my life at the moment. Do you ever find it challenging to approach, to find the right approach to a nonfiction topic, like the right angle to come in at? Absolutely. Yes. The, the biography of Nancy Grace Roman, which is called Always Looking Up, I think I wrote more drafts of that than I've written of any book ever. And some of them had thousands of words and some of them had 
less than a hundred words and everything in between. It was so hard to find the right angle. And I would get pretty much every editor we sent it to was interested, but they would have very different advice about what they thought would, uh, would be the most compelling way to. So I wrote it so many different ways and it was the hardest book I ever wrote. And after I wrote it, I swore I was done with nonfiction. And now obviously <laughs> I've come back to it, but I, I was just, I, it was, it was so hard. It was just so very hard. And I also had had the chance to meet her and interview her and given me like all this memorabilia and I just I wanted to do her justice so I think that made it even harder um but yeah I do I do feel like still that nonfiction is harder than fiction when I talk to kids about it I say that when you're writing a fiction picture book and you feel like things are you know maybe not that exciting you can just throw in a dinosaur a dragon or a unicorn <laughs> when you're writing nonfiction you have to stick to the truth and it makes it a lot harder. Uh, but I do like that challenge. So like I said, I'm very happy to be doing both for sure. That's awesome. And I actually think that biography might be even harder than kind of straight science, because it's a real person. And like, you can't have a quote there without them actually having said it. And, you know, an entire a person's entire life is like a lot. So so like, are you going to do their whole life? Are you going to do part of their life? Like, it's very challenging. I, I have not written a biography and I don't know that I will. <laughs> Particularly if they're like alive or like have close relatives who might actually read your book. That seems like it's like a whole, I've not yet attempted a biography on somebody who is alive. I, I have, um, so I was, I was happy that I could actually send my draft to Dr. Roman and she was able to approve it and I was able to make sure there were no mistakes and so I was grateful for that so in that sense doing it of someone who is alive who's willing to help was great um but I have heard stories from friends who specifically did not send their work to the the subject because they didn't want to give the subject the chance to say, no, don't write about me, or I don't want something published. Oh. Um, and so it's tricky, because you can run into that. And uh, yeah, I, I agree that I think biography might be the hardest. Okay, so I've got to ask you, how in the world do you boil these complex scientific ideas down for not just a picture book audience, but for a board book audience. That kind of blows my mind a little bit. I think it all comes down to thinking about what babies care about and then relating that to the science. So, you know, like for baby botanist, you know, I talked about the foods that babies like to eat and how they all come from plants and other things that connect to an actual baby. Um, and for baby oceanographer, connecting it, you know, to going to the beach and the waves and how are the waves at the beach versus the waves in your bathtub different. Um, and then for these new board books that I'm doing with Little B, I have, um, I have uh, Brilliant Baby Does Math and Brilliant Baby Plays Music. And for those, the idea was that these things are all around, you know, math is everywhere and babies are actually encountering math constantly, but they may not even realize it. So that was kind of the way I was approaching those. 
That's so awesome. That That's really cool. I kind of wish these kinds of books had been around when my kids were little, but like that, that time is over. <laughs> well, the world of children's books, I know, even in the last 10 years, the last five years, it's changing all the time. Yeah. We had Baby Einstein, those little videos. Do you remember those? I We never used them, but I am familiar with the the concept. Yeah. Yeah. So they had like Baby Einstein, which was all like music. And then they had like Baby Van Gogh, which was all about colors. They had all these different things. And with each, um, so the Baby Van Gogh with the colors, with each color, they had like a poem to go with it. And one day, my son, who was two years old, I was in the car with him. He was in the car seat. And all of a sudden, he starts reciting nature's first green is gold, her hardest to you to hold. And I was like, what? In the And he had memorized it from that video. So he just inhaled it. And I was like, wow. Okay. I guess, I guess he is learning something from this. <laughs> we weren't able to do that because by the time my kids came around, there was a big like anti-screen time thing going on. So my kids did not want watch educational videos they just watched whatever the heck I could put on guiltily in order to get work done videos <laughs> you know there you go there was not that much content when my kids were little so it was like there wasn't that much screen time because there really wasn't that much available for them it was all books for the most part and then every once in a while there would be a video like mommy's taking a shower sit down <laughs> <laughs> watch this video kid <laughs> oh yeah so You've obviously taken a lot of science-y type classes over the years. Um, are there any that have kind of come back to haunt you per se or inspire you more? It could be something in like elementary school, high school, college, graduate school, whatever. Well, my high school biology class is probably the class that impacted me the most. I just, I remember, I can picture myself sitting in my seat in that class and having this realization that everybody's body is made up of these microscopic things called cells and not any one of those individual cells has what we would consider a brain. And yet somehow they all work together to make your body work in so many ways and even be able to heal itself most of the time. And that just completely blew my mind. And it still does anytime I think about it. And my kids, think that chemistry and physics are more interesting than biology. And I know that they're wrong, but I cannot seem to convince them. <laughs> I don't know if that incredible fascination that started with that class and has never ended for whatever reason, my kids have not gotten that yet. I'm hoping it will come because I'm sure chemistry and physics are all very well, but like biology is definitely the most interesting of the major sciences. And I'm not sure how they're failing to see that. <laughs> That's good. I, I don't understand that either. <laughs> I think biology is the most miraculous of them all. I do. I do. Wait, obviously. Yes. yes. Well, so wait, then why didn't you major in biology in college? Well, I was really interested in the brain starting in high school. And I think um, my university, I don't think, I'm pretty sure did not have a major in neuroscience. And so I decided to major in psychology as a way of approaching the brain. And then I ended up getting my PhD in neuroscience later, but all the biology classes I took in college were kind of focused on that uh, same path of, of understanding the brain. 
Um, and that that's really the part that has most interested me. I mean, the other parts of biology, I do also find really interesting. I took a class, um, I remember in college about different adaptations that animals have to make them succeed in their environments. And that one I found super interesting too. Um, but I think the, the reason I majored in psychology was just this, this attempt to understand the brain, which I think I am still uh, to do. Um, and I still think that, that that overall field of psychology and neuroscience is, is just the most interesting thing. I, I agree. Have, have you, um, okay. I, I'm sorry. Did you watch the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? No. Would you recommend it? It's, it's very weird, but it's really good. It's this strange movie. It's with Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet and they're, they were, they're dating, they're together, and then they break up. And Jim Carrey finds out that Kate Winslet's character has gone to this scientist who can erase all memory of him in her life, because it's too painful for for her. (laughs) And so he's like, yeah. And then he's, he says, well, oh, yeah, well, I'm gonna have you erase from me too, because I don't need that those thoughts. And then it kind of goes from there. But it is a very interesting movie about the nature of memory. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's, I mean, you have to just kind of let it wash over you. It's not, it doesn't really necessarily follow, like, it's very confusing in the beginning, and then you kind of understand what's going on. But uh, it's very, very interesting. You're listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, hosted by Artemis Rarig and Rajni LaRocca. We're here today talking with neuroscientist and kidlet author, Laura Gale. So I think that concept of memory in particular is so interesting. Um, and like how, how two people can experience the same thing kind of thing and have completely different memories of it. Uh, I, I think that's all very fascinating. When I was teaching, one of the things I found um, that, that students really liked and and we're interested in was the the idea of witnesses and how unreliable witnesses can be. And uh, I remember teaching a class where I came in and I did some stuff, and then I made the students try to recount, you know, what had happened, and their recollections were so bad. And I hope that that stayed <laughs> with them. I know it impacted them a lot at the time. I hope it stayed with them afterward because I remember you know, learning about that and just being astounded. And I always think about that when I'm reading a crime novel or watching a crime show now. Yes. And uh, there are some other things about uh, attention that is that are very, very fascinating. Like there's a video where um, you tell people who are watching the video, count how many times the ball is bounced, right? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And in the middle of it, something happens something really obvious and because people are paying attention to the ball they don't see that thing i don't i don't want to say what it is in case anybody wants to look it up but it is yes fascinating it's so fascinating and you your brain completely ignores this thing that's happening because they're like how many they're counting they're like one two three it's amazing right i know that's definitely one of my favorites that is such (laughs) 
experiment. And anyone who doesn't know exactly what Rajni is talking about should should Google it and try it because it is it's so cool. That's such it's a really useful cool. skill as a scientist, though. Honestly, I feel like people are always like, "Oh, what types of trees are in the field plot you went to today?" And I'm like, "There was a hemlock tree. There was a not hemlock tree. There was a hemlock tree. There was a not hemlock tree." Because you just like see exactly what you're trying to like pick out of the picture. I mean, maybe you have a totally different experience with this Rajani as a physician where you actually have to pay attention to everything a little bit, but I sometimes need to not pay attention to everything. So here's, here's the very interesting thing about what you're saying. So one of the things that we do as doctors with each other, especially in training, is we tell stories. Okay. So when you do a case presentation, you say, this person came in and they had these symptoms and blah, 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 blah. And this was their exam. And I did these tests. And so you make an argument for what you think the diagnosis is. Okay. If you fundamentally do not ask, like if you do not listen appropriately when you're taking the history, and if you don't ask the right questions, if you go in with a preconceived notion, oftentimes you are going to miss something huge, as big as the thing on the video that no one can see. So I, I agree. I think that especially the more, like the more experience you have, the more quickly you're going to, you're ready to jump to conclusions. And sometimes you have to just take a step back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Why don't I just go in there with no assumptions? Let listen to what I hear. It's kind of like when you're writing a story, right? Sometimes you know what you're trying to say at the beginning, but I would say that most of the time I just have to write the story. And then later on, I'm like, that's that's actually what I was that was the point of this story and I didn't even know that but a lot of times if I'm if I'm like I want to write a story about x and I just go in like that then I I don't like the story that I'm telling because I didn't kind of listen to the all the things that were possible what was the most difficult story you've ever written Laura and which was the most I guess the easiest that you've written well I think um I think definitely the biography of Dr. Roman was the hardest Um, and we talked a little bit about why, but one of the big things is that every editor wanted me to focus on Hubble because she was instrumental in having the Hubble Space Telescope become a reality. But by the time Hubble was up in space, she was retired from NASA. And so it just didn't make like a beautiful little arc the way you would want it if you were just right And so it was really hard to figure out how to make the narrative arc still work with all of the real results. And as far as the easiest book I've ever written, I think maybe my very first book, which is called One Big Pair of Underwear, it was something where the first few lines just came to me in the middle of the night when I was up with my son who was a baby. And then I just kept scribbling a few lines at a time. And it it uh, it just kind of flowed and it 100% gave me a false idea of how uh, hard it is to <laughs> a good book because, you know, that one was easy and all of the rest have been harder. So it just happened to work out. <laughs> Clearly, you need to have more babies. So you get stuck up in the middle of the night more. Yeah, that is not going to be happening, but I have had lots of good <laughs> 
news happen while I've been on vacation. I got that first offer on that first book when I was on vacation and I've had numerous other book offers happen while I'm on vacation. So that is what I believe strongly that I need to take more vacations in order to advance my career. Sadly, the pandemic is interfering a bit with that Mm -hmm. strategy of career advancement, but you know, I'm going to get back on it as soon as uh, it's safe to travel again. Laura, the same thing has happened to me. Really? Oh my! The same thing has happened to me. It's a very strange phenomenon, I have to say. I but love it. I'm all for vacation. Yes. <laughs> We're not going anywhere now, so oh well. <laughs> yeah. Just have to somehow manage to keep publishing books despite the lack <laughs> of vacation. I have I have young kids, so they're called trips, not vacations. So <laughs> yes, that is an important distinction that I am well aware of. <laughs> they're called mommy makes dinner in a different place (laughs) (laughs) exactly so uh laura do you have any advice for people who are at the beginning of their kid lit careers or who are interested in writing books for kids maybe people with a stem background what what advice would you give them I don't think my advice is going to be very original. I think the best advice is the advice you always hear, which is to read hundreds of recently published books. And if you want to write nonfiction, then read all the best recently published nonfiction because it isn't in any way what you might think. And so much of the nonfiction published today is it reads like fiction, it might be funny, it might be exciting, dramatic. There are so many different ways people are writing good nonfiction, but you really need to just read a ton of it and see what people are doing that's working. So I think that's my first advice. And then my next piece of advice, also completely unoriginal, is write a lot, write all the time, just keep writing queen of the messy first draft. I get first drafts out like nobody's business constantly. And some of them never go anywhere. Some of them get as far as my critique group. Some of them get as far as my agent. And it just, you know, the more you write, the more chance you have of writing something brilliant. I truly believe that because you don't, if you have a hundred ideas, you don't really know which ones are going to be great until you actually try writing them. So those are my two biggest pieces of completely unoriginal advice, but I believe (laughs) and people should follow them. Good advice. See the rest. I have a, I have a weird question for you, but I think you will, this may uh, resonate with you. Can you compare or compare and contrast the um, failures in science like when you're doing experiments and compare them to kind of rejection in, in publishing. And does that, (laughs) does that, does that make sense? (laughs) Never, ever thought about it like that, but it completely makes sense because in science, most experiments are failures and in writing, most books you write are total junk. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) The experiments that don't work to ever get to one that is that is important and worth pursuing. And you have to do the same with writing. So I love that. I've truly never thought of it like that, but it is exactly the same. 
And also with science, you often don't know when you start something where you're going to end up. And that's the same with writing. Just like you were saying, you might start writing without knowing how the book is going to take shape or what the important theme is going to be. And you just have to write it and find out. So yeah, completely parallel. I think people don't really think about scientists as failing a lot, but like, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the point of a hypothesis is not to get it right. Like that's <laughs> it. But yeah, science is mostly failure. And I think that there are some good books speaking to that and there should probably probably be more. Maybe one of us should add to that because it, it is such an important thing for, for kids to know. Scientists fail all the time in so many different ways, but it still is progress. Every failure is progress. Just right, like- Because sometimes then you're like, okay, well, that didn't work. <laughs> we got to try something else, maybe this way and see if that works. Yeah, I remember seeing somebody- post on social media at some point about trying to get a hundred rejections within a certain amount of time with the idea being that in order to get those rejections, you have to be getting your work out there and maybe you'll actually get an acceptance along the way, which I'm pretty sure she did. And same thing with science, you know, every thing that doesn't work gets you closer to figuring out what does work. So and I think some of the really fascinating things for me are looking at um, medications and how um, there will be a medication that's being developed for a particular issue. And it's really not that good for that issue, but it's really good for something else. They realize that like a side effect of the medication is something that's very desirable. Right. So it's like, aha, uh -huh. <laughs> like there was a blood pressure medication that was like, okay, for blood pressure, it grows hair. <laughs> so people are like, oh, yeah, like we need to, yeah, we need to use that to grow people's hair because that's an issue. So you can have great hair and maybe some like slightly lowered blood pressure at the same time. That's right. Just heard an episode of how I built this recently about a company that started where they were trying to make something to grow hair. And then kombucha was a byproduct of that. And then they ended up just selling the kombucha and became successful with that. The hair thing did not work out at all. Oh. I don't think I want to think about hair the next time I drink kombucha, though. <laughs> Let's go. That's pretty wild. They were like, oh, I guess we can drink this byproduct. Oh, cool. <laughs> Notice I'm grossed out by the hair and the kombucha, but I didn't say you about the mouse frames earlier. So... <laughs> Maybe that's <says> something. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, the mouse brains I think are very kind of October themed. We're recording this in October. So I think we're just in the Halloween mood. So we're like, yeah, mouse brains. Yeah. So when but this actually airs, you can like transport yourself back to October. Just maybe not in 2020, but you can pretend it's like your dream year October. A happy yeah. October. Um, and Laura, you have some books that are coming out next October, maybe in the fall. I have, right. I have a book coming out next fall. It was supposed to come out in spring 2021, but got moved uh, due to the pandemic. And it's called Who is a Scientist? And I'm so excited about it. It's my first photo illustrated book. And it shows photos of real scientists in all different disciplines. And it shows photos of them 
basically at work and at play. So um, there's one scientist who's a meteorologist and we have a photo of her dancing because that's one of her passions. And then a photo of her launching a weather balloon. And it's like that for every scientist. And it's just so cool. And I really hope that every kid will see for themselves that they too could be a scientist. Sure, they might not look exactly like any one of these diverse scientists in the book, but I think there's a big enough range of people with all kinds of interests in, you know, sports and movies and music and dogs and eating pizza and ice cream and french fries and playing video games, you know, things that kids also love and that they can see that they fit in with these people and that they would, you know, should they choose to be a scientist, there are so many different directions they could go with that. You know, they could be a paleontologist who works in the desert discovering dinosaur skeletons, or they could be an astronomer. It, there's just so many options and that scientists really are just like them, except a little bit older. So I'm, like I said, I'm so excited about it. I can't wait for it to come out. The photographers that, that took these photos were amazing. The scientists themselves are amazing. And it just makes me so happy every time I get to work on any part of the process with this book. So what's a random hobby you had? Or that, okay, what's a random hobby you had while you were getting your degree in neuroscience? What did you do like on your off time? <laughs> I guess my biggest hobby has- Like G-rated, G-rated. Reading. So, you know, no big surprise for a writer, maybe a little bit more surprising for a scientist. Um, I've always had huge stacks of books everywhere and maxed out my library card. Um, I also have a very- significant hobby of eating chocolate. I, <laughs> I I can get behind that ho- hobby. Eating chocolate. And over the years, it's really, I feel like I've honed in on ice cream. So now when I travel, I look up the best ice cream place um, in any given location and make sure to visit it and sample the best local ice cream. So that's a hobby that I'm passionately committed to. And then love being outdoors. So hiking, is always something that makes me happy. I also enjoy skiing. Um, And during the pandemic, being able to walk in the woods has been a huge part of maintaining at least some semblance of sanity. Yeah, and I know uh, all of our listeners can find out more about your really weird hobbies on your website. The only one that I really thought was totally weird was that you like lima beans, though, because (laughs) I am not a big fan of lima beans, but Brussels sprouts. Oh, it was Brussels sprouts. I love Brussels sprouts. Love both lima beans and. Oh, okay. Yep. I, I like Brussels sprouts. Okay, but I don't I know. Lima like beans them. don't taste like anything to me. Well, if you maybe try cooking them with a lot of garlic, but they. Keep- oh well, I like garlic, but then wouldn't you just say you liked garlic? Yeah, but you no. <laughs> With a, especially with fresh lima beans, you know, when they're in season, but you can do it with, with frozen too. Like if you cook them right, you can get this like crispy outside and really silky inside. And they're just so delightful. I don't think I've ever eaten a crispy lima bean before. So someday I'm going to come visit you, Laura, and you're going to make me lima beans that I will like. Please, please. With a lot of garlic. For you. I do like garlic. I'm Greek after all. There you go. Um. 
you can do the same kind of things with like fava beans, but lima beans are like all, you know, always available. Whereas fava beans, it's like that little yes. tiny. During that tiny window, so wonderful. Uh, so you, t you suggested all of our listeners that if they want to be a great writer, they need to read a lot of books. Do you have a STEM book recommendation that you think our readers would enjoy? I mean, our, not our readers, our listeners would enjoy. <laughs> So there are so many STEM books I love, but um, one that I always recommend to people and buy for people, um, Stacey McAnulty, who's one of my critique partners and friends, has a series called Our Universe. Her first one was Earth, and now she has Moon and Sun and Ocean and Mars is coming soon. And I think what she does so well is balancing the science with humor. And I think that's incredibly hard to do. And she just pulls it off, making it look easy. And so those books are just, just pitch perfect as far as I'm concerned. And those books, they have incredible voice. Like she embodies each of those yes, celestial objects or objects in nature. It's so cool. Yes. And right. Like I said, she makes it look easy, but we all know it is anything but easy to do that. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today, Laura, all it, about your brains and your books. It was so much fun talking to you guys. I almost felt like we were just hanging out in person in a nice coffee <laughs> shop. And I hope we get to do that sometime in the not too distant future. Oh. Laura, it was delightful to talk to you. You're so much fun. You were, it was really fun. And um, best of luck to you with all your, all your books, your dozens and dozens of books coming out. Thank you. To find out more about Laura and her books, you can visit her website at lauragale.com. You can find a link to that in the podcast notes or on our Facebook page, STEM Women in Kidlet. And now it's time for STEM book recommendations. My STEM book recommendation is The Last Marshmallow, written and illustrated by Grace Lynn. In this board book, two friends learn all about division while enjoying a sweet treat. If you want to get your baby a head start in math, check out the other books in this series as well. My STEM book recommendation is Girl vs. Squirrel, written by Haley Barrett, illustrated by Renee Andriani. This is a story about a little girl named Pearl who wants to feed birds with her bird feeder until she's foiled over and over again by a pesky squirrel. But uh, Pearl grows to learn a little bit of something about the squirrel. I just absolutely love everything about this book. The text and the illustrations are completely delightful. Thank you for listening to STEM Women in Kidlet, the podcast about women with degrees or jobs in STEM fields. That's science, technology, engineering, and math, who also happen to write children's books. Happy reading!